One of the most famous stories from the Middle Ages is that a woman named Joan disguised herself as a man and became Pope. So, is there any truth to this story? That's ahead this week on Footnoting History. Hello, 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 and welcome to Footnoting History. My name is Nathan. Uh, in today's episode, I want to explore one of the more well-known medieval conspiracy theories, um, though really it's more of an urban legend. The myth of Pope Joan, the only Pope-S in history. Now, this episode is going to build on some of the themes that I talked about in my Papal Pornocracy episode from earlier this year. So, you may want to go listen to that one before continuing on with this episode. According to most versions of this story, at some point in probably the 9th century, a woman named Joan or Joanna passed herself off as a man, took clerical orders, and eventually was elected as Pope. Unfortunately for her, she became pregnant by a lover and was eventually discovered when she gave birth during the middle of a papal procession. And thus, every Pope since, before being anointed as Bishop of Rome, has to sit on a special stool with a hole cut in it where some poor priest or deacon has to reach under and confirm the existence of testicles. It will not surprise you to learn, I hope, that absolutely no detail of any of this is true, including the bit about the stool, uh, even though that exists as sort of a separate myth from Joan now. Uh, if you've ever watched the Showtime series The Borgias, the one with Jeremy Irons, you see an example of this testicle-checking ceremony in the first episode, uh, when Rodrigo Borgia, uh, Jeremy Irons' character, is elected as Pope Alexander VI. Uh, supposedly, during the examination, the cleric was supposed to say, Habit duos testiculos et bene pendentes. He has two testicles and well-hanging. But again, this never actually happened. So, where does Joan's story come from? Well, the first surviving record of any reference to a female pope comes from the mid-13th century, when several chroniclers record roughly similar details. The earliest of these, and a possible source for all later accounts of the legend, was written by the Dominican friar Jean de Mailly, who records in his Universal Chronicle of Metz in 1255 that there was a certain pope, or rather, he says, a pope-s, who, quote, pretending to be a man, was made a notary of the curia, the papal curia, on account of the uprightness of his character, and then cardinal, and finally pope. On a certain day, when he had mounted a horse, he gave birth to a child, and immediately by Roman justice had his feet tied together, and was dragged by the tail of the horse, and was stoned by the people for half a league, and where he died he was buried. And it is written there, Peter, father of fathers, published the parturition, the, the childbirth, of the Pope S. As Thomas Noble points out, De Mailly prefaces this account with the word require, meaning to be asked after. Uh, in other words, he needs to research it further, suggesting that De Mailly had doubts as to the veracity of the story and needed to confirm its authenticity. Similar stories are repeated by two other Dominicans, Etienne de Bourbon, who places her date around 1100, and Martin of Poland, writing between 1265 and 1277, who dates Joan's reign to the early 9th century, following the death of Pope Leo IV in 855, and claims that she was of English heritage, but born in Mainz, in Germany. Uh, this last account has rather more details involved. Quote, After Leo, John, an Englishman, born in Mainz, reigned for two years, seven months, and four days. He died in Rome, and the papacy was vacant for a month. He, as is said, was a woman, 
and when she was still a girl, she was taken to Athens, dressed as a man, by a certain lover. She advanced so much in various branches of knowledge that no one could be found to equal her. Subsequently, she taught the Trivium in Rome, and had great teachers as her disciples and auditors. And because her life and learning were held in high repute in the city, she was elected Pope unanimously. But while Pope, she was impregnated by her lover. Not knowing the time of her delivery, when she was headed from St. Peter's to the Lateran, she gave birth in a narrow passage between the Colosseum and San Clemente, and after her death, as is reported, she was buried in that very place. Because the Lord Pope always avoids that street, it is believed by many that he does this on account of his detestation of that event. He is not placed in the catalogue of the Holy Pontiffs on account of the deformity of the female sex as it is applied to this matter. Uh, so, in Martin of Poland, this is the first time that Joan's nationality or birthplace are given, as is the story about spending time in Athens, and the bit about processions avoiding San Clemente, uh, a church that's only about two blocks from the Colosseum. Following these authors, the story about Joan began to appear in various permutations throughout the rest of the Middle Ages. Uh, details were sometimes different. Occasionally, her name wasn't Joan, but Agnes or Gilberta. But the rough sketch of Jean de Mailly was the same. A woman passed herself off as a man, became Pope, and was discovered when she gave birth. My personal favorite comes from Giovanni Boccaccio, uh, author of the Decameron, who briefly recounts Joan's life in his book Concerning Famous Women. Uh, the basics of the story are the same, but Boccaccio spends a lot of time bemoaning the fact that a woman was allowed to become the vicar of Christ on earth. Quote, God from on high was merciful to his people and did not allow a woman to hold so lofty a place, govern so many people, and deceive them with such a wicked fraud, and he abandoned that unduly audacious woman to herself. Spurred by the devil, who had led her into this wickedness and made her persist in it, Joan, who in private life had been remarkably virtuous, now that she had risen to the lofty pontificate, fell prey to the ardor of lust. And she, who for a long time had been able to hide her sex, did not lack the wiles necessary to quench her desire. And so, finding someone who would secretly mount on St. Peter's successor and assuage her lecherous itching, the Pope happened to become pregnant. Oh, what a shameful crime. This story was repeated many times for the rest of the Middle Ages, but it was not formally challenged until the 15th century. So pervasive was it that later medieval copies of earlier medieval chronicles will sometimes insert the story, leading to some confusion as to when the story actually emerged, but these are all later editions, and the story does not appear in the oldest versions of these chronicles. During the Reformation, the example of Joan was completely decried by Catholics as nothing more than a fable, but it was used by Protestants as a paragon of sort of the systemic problems of the Catholic priesthood and a fundamental example of corruption. Joan's story was repeated countless times in the early modern period in the form of plays. Uh, I highly recommend Alain Boirot's book on Joan, which has an almost exhaustive treatment of her appearance in the literature of this period. The myth has persisted well into the modern era in a few movies and novels. Uh, the most famous of these is by Donna Woolfolk Cross, uh, which has this whole author's note section at the end that, perhaps a little self-interestedly, tries to make the case that Joan or someone like her really did exist, and it repeats the erroneous testicle checking, which never happened, as evidence for the existence of Joan. As I said at the beginning of this episode, the medical exam wasn't something that actually ever occurred, but to sidetrack for a second, the reason that it is even marginally believable 
is that any kind of bodily deformity was a potential impediment to someone assuming the office of the priesthood, including, say, an undropped testicle or castration. Uh, that said, a dispensation for such conditions was certainly obtainable from the papal penitentiary in Rome, um, but no such medical examination accompanied papal election. While Joan's story has no historical veracity whatsoever, it lingers on the edge of popular consciousness, to the point that in the decade I've been teaching college, I've still gotten a couple of questions from students wondering if the story is real. And before you ask, no, it definitely wasn't real or a cover-up, uh, medieval chroniclers were not shy about exposing scandal and misbehavior, especially when it came to the Bishop of Rome. If you listen to my pornocracy episode, you know that the more salacious the details, the better. And for someone like Lutprand of Cremona, if he had the chance to decry the exercise of spiritual and political power by a woman, he would have been all over it. That said, I think there's a really strong case to be made for why the Jones story is set during the 9th century. Uh, namely, that it was a period of extreme papal scandal and venality, and the idea that a woman could con people into making her pope fits entirely with all of the other stories about the papacy during that period. And it's here that I want to talk a little bit about some of the historical and social issues of conspiracy theories. Over the last five years, I've been doing episodes on medieval conspiracy theories for this podcast, and... In the process, I've raised a few of these issues indirectly, but I want to address them more fully here. Conspiracy theories are fun to the outside observer, largely on the basis of their absurdity. The proposed conspiracy, in order to be entertaining, has to be so manifestly impossible or require a degree of orchestration and, well, to use a word that gets bandied about a lot these days, collusion, that it seems more ridiculous to believe it than not to believe it. But there is a sense in which this does a disservice to the social function of conspiracy theories. While they may be absurd, belief in a cover-up or collusion by those in power to hide crimes and misbehavior performs a vital function of empowerment. People believe in conspiracies often not on the basis of logical analysis or reasoned thought, but because they feel powerless, that some aspect of their lives is not under their control or perhaps not under anyone's control. It's more comforting, for instance, to believe that the world economy is being directed by a few select puppet masters who are part of an exclusive economic club, uh, be it the Illuminati, Davos, the Bilderberg Group, than it is to believe that the market, capital N market, is this mass uncontrollable thing resulting from the free agency of billions of human beings interacting with one another in sometimes unpredictable ways. Therefore, if you are in a disadvantaged state, it is sometimes more helpful or believable to believe that what has happened to you is neither your own fault, nor a fault inherent in the system in which you live, but the result of manipulation of your life by higher forces acting in concert against you, because the reality of the situation is too painful or difficult to deal with. Now, none of this is to say that conspiracies don't exist. Obviously, they do. But the readiness with which we are willing to accept the existence of conspiracy is often directly related to our ability to influence the systems of our lives that that conspiracy reflects. In the case of Pope Joan, the conspiracy is born of a fundamental distrust of ecclesiastical power and practice, and distrust of the exercise of power by women. People who believe this conspiracy often have some sort of personal axe to grind. Of course, they say. 
The papacy was fundamentally corrupt to the point that they even allowed a woman to become pope. Uh, the more than a little misogyny there. Uh, misogyny also appears in the fact that the defining characteristic that allowed Joan to ascend to the papacy was supposedly her intelligence and learning. This could be read a number of ways, such as the sort of backhanded compliment suggesting that most women aren't intelligent or capable of such action, or a critique of the education and gullibility of medieval churchmen. The conspiracy theorist might also say, well, if a woman managed to become pope, of course the church would cover it up. That betrays a concern in the other direction, one which believes clerical power is so interested in maintaining its own existence that it constantly engages in rewriting of history to hide its own failures. When cover-ups do emerge, like the recurring sexual abuse crisis of the modern Catholic Church, it reinforces the plausibility of something like the Pope Joan conspiracy, even though the two are in no way related. In this way, conspiracy theories help some people to order their world by making everything have a rationalized human cause. For the conspiracist, there are no unseen forces or unbalanced equations, merely variables whose value has not yet been determined. To the outside observer, the conspiracy seems wild and irrational. To the believer, it is the most paramount rationality, an attempt to find order in what is otherwise a chaotic universe. It's a similar impulse to why people tend to be dismissive of the European Middle Ages in general. Rather than having to deal with the complexities of medieval thought and society, they get branded as a dark age of learning and backward religiosity that resulted from the collapse of once glorious Rome, superstitious and monkish, as Edward Gibbon might have put it. Thinking of the Middle Ages as a dark age allows modern people to think of themselves as rational by comparison, despite the fact that training in formal logic was a key component of medieval European education, and modern society can be, and is, frequently deeply irrational. So, did Pope Joan exist? No, she did not. But her story can tell us a lot about the concerns of the periods that repeated it, and the people who chose to believe it. This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes. <laughs>